what I want to talk about tonight is some things from the headlines that we're seeing uh, that pertain to the kingdom of God. Uh, Steve mentioned Asbury College uh, going on in Kentucky. Uh, I think it's a college, maybe it's Asbury University College. They've had this quote-unquote revival uh, going on for about two or three weeks. I don't know exact time. But, you know, if it's a revival, I, do you call it off? You know, so they, they just stopped it. The, the president of the university got up last week and says, okay, we're going to put a stop to this. Okay, if it's really the Holy Spirit working, can you really stop the Holy Spirit? So that's something, uh, um, you know, a true revival, the word is preached. And we'll talk about some scripture that supports that. And if the gospel is not preached, you've got to question what's really going on there. There's people speaking in tongues there. There's healings going on. It's part of the charismatic movement that's, that's what's, being, what's going on there. And, you know, I think we kind of misuse the word revival. I remember growing up in the church I had, we had revival weekend every year. But, you know, a revival would kind of be on its own, you know, people coming to faith because the, the strong preaching of God's word and the Holy Spirit moving in people's hearts and convicting them of their sins and to repent from their sins and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But Asbury College seems to plan them all. They have them every February, May, or every February and uh, March. And I actually think this one was a little bit overhyped for a reason because well, I'm sure you've heard of the movie, The Jesus Revolution, that just came out. And it seems like they're timed at the same time because when the Jesus Revolution is about the Jesus movement that happened at the same time as a big revival happened at Asbury College in 1970. And this is when the, the Jesus freaks... Uh, is what it was known by some people here, started in San Francisco, migrated to Southern California. Uh, the Jesus Revolution is based on a book written by Greg Laurie, who heads up uh, Harvest, the Harvest Crusades and the Harvest Chapel, or I'm not exactly the name of his church. In the, and out of this Jesus Revolution or Jesus movement came uh, the Calvary Chapel as well. And, and it's, it's a big charismatic movement. It's the modern charismatic. It, it pollutes what the Pentecostals have, and it takes it to a new, new extreme from the Pentecostal uh, movement. Uh, and in this Jesus revolution, we have a lot of false prophets and false teachers. And it's all about ambition, I mean emotions, and it's man-centered theology. Lonnie Frisbee, if you've heard that name, is one of the characters. But it's not about his life. A lot of people think it's about his life. It's only about a year and a half a time frame, and it's really about... Greg Laurie, who wrote the book, and him coming to faith during the Jesus movement in the 1970, 71, 72 time frame. So we only see a glimpse of Lonnie Frisbee. Frisbee. It's just like the Frisbee you throw, Frisbee. He was a, uh, a hippie up here in San Francisco, ended up going down to uh, Southern California and, and bringing uh, supposedly... I heard his personal testimony because I was researching this. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Type in Lonnie Frisbee, personal testimony, if you hear, want to hear what he has to say. He hears how God talks to him. You'll hear how, really, he's an unrepentant homosexual, homosexual drug addict, never repented from that. And he, he was a miracle worker, healing the blind. And he talks about that in his personal testimony, that he was healing the blind. And then we have the TV series, The Chosen. And the same character that plays Lonnie Frisbee plays Jesus in The Chosen. It's the same same actor. And by the way, that actor is 
a mystic Catholic that prays to the dead as a, uh, the actor in his personal life. And we have to be careful about the chosen. Anything that represents Jesus, you say, you could be in your mind making that person an idol. And we have to be very careful of that. 95% of that content in that series is not from the Bible. It's like filling in the blanks. You know, if people are watching that and they hear Jesus say something that's not in the Bible, they're not going to know. They're going to be biblically ignorant, and, and they may be coming to faith for the wrong reasons. So we have to be careful of that. And the third season, I think, is being heavily advertised right now. And this Lonnie Frisbee, he's gotten all, the character that plays those two, Jesus and Lonnie Frisbee, is getting a lot of publicity. He's, he's very heretical in his teaching. Another one that's getting a lot of publicity right now is also Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley. He, he, I just saw this YouTube video uh, last week. He declares that the Bible is not relevant. The 66 books are just stories. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ's resurrection. But without the Bible, how do we know who Christ is? And why was he raised from the dead? And, and raised to what? How do you know that without the Bible? So I'm going to go through some scripture verses. They're all referenced on the second page or on the right-hand side, depending if you're, uh, uh, that says scripture references. Uh, and so I'm going to go through those references just to reinforce the points I just make from a biblical perspective. So the first thing is how and what to believe. You know, in Romans 10, 9 through 11, very popular uh, lower right-hand side, you see scripture references. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that tells you what we have to do. We have to confess with our mouth, and we have to believe in our heart these things about Jesus. And I've, I've been in other churches where I said, that's all you have to do. That's all you, you just have to say you believe in Jesus. But if you don't know who Jesus is, what are you believing in? You have to know who Jesus is. And you have to know what the true gospel is. And without that, this, making this profession is meaningless unless you have that background. And then further on down in that passage, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then further on down in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So these people making this profession of faith, if they haven't heard the word of Christ, it's an empty profession of faith. Luke 24, 27, and, and this is coming back to a little bit of re, re, at what Andy Stanley was saying. In the beginning, this is in all the prophets, these are the men on the road to Aramaeus, uh, after Jesus was crucified, and they're leaving Jerusalem and walking to Aramaeus, and all of a sudden Christ is walking next to them. They don't know who he is at this point in time. Their eyes haven't been opened yet. And uh, after they, their eyes are open, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus Christ, interpreted to them in all the scriptures. And at that time, the scriptures were the Old Testament. So in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the Bible is not irrelevant. You have to have the Bible or we don't know who Jesus Christ is. Acts 17, 10 through 11. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, daily to see if these things were so. You know, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, some for the first coming, some for the second coming. That's how we know Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And without that scripture, how do you know who the real Jesus is? Because there's a lot of people that have professed to be Jesus over time. You know, some, you know I mentioned, you know, Lonnie Frisbee says God's talking to him. And this is, I've repeated this before, it's a t-shirt that Justin Peters has. You want to hear God speak to you? Read your Bible. You want to hear God speak audibly? Read it out loud. Uh, that's how you learn uh, have Jesus talking to you. So a couple things about repentance and true repentance. Mark 1:14. John after John, now after John, in, in this reference, John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's not a suggestion. That's a command from Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. And a lot of people leave that out when they're ministering to someone and trying to open their eyes in, with the word. And you, you have to preach the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel, the true gospel. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. This is Paul talking. And a, to the Corinthians. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity of sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. And the key word there is practice. You know, we're never sinless in this life. But if you're a practicing a known sin on a daily basis, you haven't repented from that sin. It doesn't mean you can't sin again something that you used to do in your past. But if you're constantly practicing a sin, you haven't really repented. So like if you're an alcoholic and, and, and trying to get off of alcoholism, you go through programs and stuff, and sometimes it takes two or three times before, but you're trying, you're trying to repent from that. Same thing with homosexuality. You have to repent from practicing sin, unknown sin. Talking a little bit about false prophets. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, which most of these people do, then the one we proclaim is other than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one to you that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so they're basically saying the Corinthians are buying into it. You're, you're putting up with it. And you should not allow this false doctrine of another Jesus, a different spirit, and another gospel to creep into your church. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, 
deceitful workmen disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And, and this is what happened when people aren't literate to what the Bible says. They accept what the person on the stage is saying. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as ser servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Uh, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I think just to, to read along with me, uh, it would be helpful to uh, look at that. It's a little bit longer passage. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 6. And this is John talking to the Galatians, I mean uh, Paul talking to the Galatians. This is the first book of the Bible he wrote, the book of Galatians. So this is very early in time after the crucifixion. And Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They had Judaizers in there saying, you got to go through a lot of the Ju Jewish custom ceremonial cleansings and rituals in order to really be saved. That was the different gospel that these Judaizers were teaching. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Be damned. As we have said before, if you didn't hear Paul the first time, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anytime something's repeated, it's pretty serious. Now Paul speaking for himself, for I'm now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And that's what's happening a lot in some of the churches today. They're, they're kowtowing to the woke society that we have today. They're kowtowing to man's demands and, and not staying true to the scripture. And I'm, we are all blessed to be in a church that's staying true to the scripture. A couple other things, we, you know, what is a cult? You know, Revelations 22, 18, 19. Uh, we see this one a lot. We talk about this one a lot. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, these people that say they heard another revelation from God, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, oh, we could ignore this part of the Bible. If anyone takes away from this God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, you know, God's making it very clear how important his word is. And I've always said God wrote what he meant and he meant what he wrote. And, uh, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't. So Deuteronomy 4.2, going back into the Old Testament, it's a kind of a parallel passage of Revelation 22, 18, 19. You shall not add to the word that I commanded you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you, which he gave in Exodus and repeated in Deuteronomy. And then towards the end of, getting closer to the end of Deuteronomy, or in the middle of Deuteronomy 12, 32, everything that I command you, 
you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take from it. So it's just kind of repeating what John in Revelation wrote. And it's even in Proverbs 2, 35 through 6. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not, take to his, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. One of the Ten Commandments, don't lie. Okay, a little bit on idol worship. Exodus 24, the second commandment. By the way, this is not the second commandment in the Catholic Ten Commandments. They ignore this. They take away, if you will. They ignore this commandment. The way they get Ten Commandments is they make the Tenth Commandment two commandments to make up for this one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife and thy neighbor's things. They, that's two commandments in the Catholic Bible, or Catholic, not Bible, but Catholic uh, faith. So Exodus 24, the ten command, uh, second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Someone asked Vody Bachman once, why don't you tell those people in that church to take that, why do you tell them to take that picture of a black Jesus down? And he says, I tell everybody in every church to take the picture of Jesus down. <laughs> Jesus wasn't black and he wasn't white. Oh, they asked, why don't you have you know, white churches take a picture, a white picture of Jesus off the wall? I said, all pictures of Jesus go down. And there was somebody interviewing somebody that saw the chosen and what they thought of it. And she says, I look into Jesus's eyes in that movie. And when I close my eyes and pray to Jesus, now I see his eyes and I'm praying to him. They're idolizing the guy they saw in the movie. And that's the danger. I don't think there's, you know, I think it's okay maybe to, to do some of these movies if they're really biblical. But when 95% of it's not content in the Bible, you've got to really worry about it and how good it is. Yeah, and I heard some people say, wow, this Lonnie Frisbee, he, I mean, uh, the, the character that plays Jesus, he looks just like Jesus. What do you mean he looks just like Jesus? How does anybody know what Jesus looks like? <laughs> uh, but I remember growing up, my mom had a picture of Jesus on the wall. It's one of the historical ones that I've seen a lot over the years. And uh, I always kind of wondered about that. You know, why is it up there? Because we really don't know what he looked like, so why should we have a representation up there? And I think that's another reason why Jesus came when he did. So we really don't have that. So we can't idolize him. Uh, an image, not an, an image of Jesus. Because if you're idolizing the image, you're not, you're not worshiping the true Jesus, that what Jesus stands for in the word. Acts 17:29, Paul, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art an imagination of man. And that's what these are. These are the imaginations of man. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 16. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female. Deuteronomy 27, 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. 
So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Why do you think God did that? He doesn't want anybody to worship Moses or idolize Moses. That's kind of a precursor where I wanted to go today. This prompted me to do this message on the sufficiency of Scripture. And this counters basically all these false teachings and things that are going on in our society today that we see in the popular media and the secular media. And uh, to make sure, you know, we get, keep ourselves grounded and we don't get swept away by any of this uh, because it's, a, it's getting a lot of media attention. I mean, even Tucker Carlson is interviewing these people at Asbury College, the, the, the senior class president or something, buddy, somebody like that. So it's, it's getting national media attention. Uh, Greg Laurie's all over the media right now. And uh, I don't know why Andy Stanley gets so much publicity. It's amazing how much publicity he gets. And then we see The Chosen advertised everywhere on TV now and the Jesus Revolution movie. It's amazing. I have the Psalm 19, 9 through 11 already printed out. But if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you're certainly welcome to do that. I just want to read that to you. And this is... Uh, a very succinct part of Scripture that tells us about the sufficiency of Scripture. Psalm 19, 9 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. In the Hebrew, it's literally blameless. Reviving the soul. Some translations say restoring the soul or converting the soul. The NASB says restoring the soul and the King James says converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making the wise simple. The precepts in the King James and NSB says, statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules, judgments, or judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. In there, when we look at, if you will, the outline that I have in the, uh, uh, of, of this passage that is there on uh, the, I call it the first page of the handout with the title Sufficiency of Scripture on top. There are six titles to this set of six sentences or half sentences. The six titles of of the, sufficient, the law, the testimony, the precepts or the statutes, the commandments, the fear, and the rules, and the judgments. And then there's six characteristics. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean. Oops, I got sure twice. That's not right. True. <laughs> it rhymes. <laughs> so uh, last one should be true, not sure. Uh, six effects of Scripture, reviving or restoring or converting the soul, making wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and there is righteousness altogether. When you look at those six titles, you will find those words also used in Psalm 119. And I put those in your handout there, and I ask you all to read Psalm 119. 
By the way, it's longer than 30 books in the Bible, <laughs> one chapter. <laughs> uh, 179 verses, something like that. Uh, but I, I put just a few of them there, and you can see, you, re, you see some of the things that we just saw in Psalm 19, but it really is talking about the full sufficiency of God's word in the life of a believer who loves and obeys scripture. It's edifying to, to read that and remind ourselves and keep ourselves grounded in scripture. This Psalm 1979 that we're studying tonight is just a sweeping, comprehensive treatment of the sufficiency of the word of God. And just make sure that we don't forget, if you go back and what I have in bold, of the Lord, 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 of the Lord. This is all of the Lord. These are, God is letting us know how important this is. This is God's word. So the law of the Lord, it views scripture as God's law for man's life. This is the manufacturer, if you will, giving you the manual to maximize operation. This is God's word to man about how to live for maximum blessing in time, in this time, and eternity. As such, it is perfect. To give you a sense of the Hebrew word, it is perfect, not perfect as opposed to imperfect, but perfect as opposed to incomplete. So this is to say that this scripture, this law of the Lord, is so comprehensive as to leave nothing out. It's perfect. In fact, one lexicon puts it this way. It's all, it's all, it is all cited so as to cover all aspects of something. Another way to say that is nothing should be taken from it or added to it. It is sufficient in its fullness. The effect is, says, restoring the soul. The word restoring means transforming, totally transforming the soul. The Greek word is nephesh. I mean, the Hebrew word is nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, the inner person. And every time you see that word in scripture, it's, it's translated many times into English like self, soul, person, heart, mind. But every case, it means the inner person. So here is God's testimony. Scripture is totally comprehensive so as to transform the whole inner person. That is a very important statement. God's testimony, Scripture is totally comprehensive so as to transform the whole inner person. And that's how we know if somebody is a real Christian is if their life has been transformed. That means the Holy Spirit has done the work in their heart and our hearts been turned from stone to flesh. That is why the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than what? Two-edged sword. That's why Peter can write, we were begotten again by the word of truth. That's why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. One of the things we can never do in ministry is lose confidence in the power of the word. Don't ever think there's anything that can come close to the power of the word. And that's what a lot of these media companies are trying to do. They think their media is more powerful than God's word and they're trying to reach people in a different way, not using God's word. 
I can listen to a preacher preach a sermon, and I can tell you what he really believes about the Bible. Not what he says he believes, but what he really believes. And if he's not quoting scripture, you've got to really start questioning what this guy really believes. And especially, we've got to be like the Bereans and examining if these things are so in scripture. I went to a seeker-sensitive church for a while, got caught up in that a little bit. I started look, examining the scripture and I said, this doesn't jive with scripture. And I had to explain to Carolyn, so those don't know, my wife, uh, after every service, this, this, is, this is not right. You know, we finally had to move on. You know, they just weren't teaching the word of God. Because if, you know, a pastor really believes in the unique soul-transforming power of scripture, then that's exactly what should be coming from their mouths. When that pastor gets up in the pulpit, in that desperate hour, when you know you stand before God and men to make a difference, and you're never going to use anything less that, that has any less power than the word. And like Steve says, when whoever is at the pulpit speaking, the only thing that's 100% true is when we're quoting the Bible scripture. Anything else in between is interjection on my part. Hopefully it jives with scripture. And feel free to call me out if it doesn't. If I hear a man say, I believe the Bible is the most powerful thing and all I hear is 10 stories strung together, then I am not sure what he believes anymore. And a lot of these teachers love to talk, so-called teachers love to tell stories. They're trying to make it relevant, you know. The second thing Psalmist says is the testimony of the Lord. Scripture is God's own self-disclosure, his own testimony about himself. It is his own revelation. I learn all that there is to know about God savingly here in the Bible. I can see God in creation. That's the first six verses of this psalm, so go back and check out uh, verses 1 through 6 of, of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And you can see him in the sun, in the orbit from one end of infinite space to the other, dragging the whole solar system. I walk my puppies at night, and I look up at that sky every night, and I see God up there. And it's just, wow, it's just amazing. And we can predict where these stars are going. It's, it's just, you know, the astronomists have, have mapped it all out. And by the way, they mapped it out way before Christ was born. When we talk about the flat earth, we, the Egyptians knew, I forget, 7th century BC, they had it all figured out how, how round the earth was. They knew the circumference of the earth within a few thousand miles. They, they, they estimated around 25,000 and plus or minus 1,000. That's about the circumference. They knew it all. They figured it all out. I mean, they knew when a ship went over the curve of the earth, and the ship disappeared, but they could still see the mast, they knew the earth was curved. The same thing when the, the right solar eclipse, and you see the earth's shadow on the moon, but it's curved. The earth isn't flat. So it, this, this flat earth society is trying to say Christians aren't scientific is a way to, uh, you know, what we typically see in our society today, if you can't attack their message, you attack the person, ad hominem attack. And that's what they're doing, is trying to discredit us. And they say that enough that everybody's like, well, every Christian believes the earth is flat. No, we don't. 
Isaiah says the earth is a sphere. So the heavens declare the glory. And the firmament, I already said that, so got off on a little tangent there. But I just wanted to, uh, in case anybody didn't know, that man's known that for a long time. It was scientifically approved. It was around earth and, and by the Egyptians. But here in the word of God, what I need to know about God personally and savingly is here in the word. And so this is God's own testimony. When I read the word of God, I'm hearing him speak, am I not? Which I just said. You want to hear God speak? Read the Bible. God is a talking God. You know, I love the app where the app will read the word of God to you. I almost feel like God's talking to me when, when somebody's reciting the word of God and, and, and just reading right through the Bible. This is his testimony, and it says, Scripture as a testimony of the Lord is sure. Any word of things that are not sure. People say, why do you spend all your time in the Bible? Because I don't trust anything else. And I totally trust the Bible. And the psalmist says, it is reliable, making the wise the simple. Now, once people have heard their, have heard their life totally transformed, that's salvation. We want to move them along the path of sanctification. And we just, the song that we just sang, the word is a lamp unto my feet. It's my path that we want to take. And this word makes simple people wise. The meaning of the word simple, the Hebrew language is, is very real, uh, concrete language, not abstract like the Greek. And simple comes from the root word that means an open door. And a simple-minded person was somebody whose mind was always open. They were open to every idea and accepted every idea. And the term simple-minded came along of that. And if somebody said, oh, I have an open mind, a Jew is liable to say, well, shut it, because that's an indication you don't know what to retain and what to let go. You have a door to discriminate, right? That's what every door is for, to let some in and to keep some out. There's nothing virtuous about being an agnostic, or it's a Latin equivalent, ignoramus, which is less likely to be the profession of anybody. Nobody wants to be an ignoramus. But the simpleton was the person who had not enough discernment or discrimination or knowledge or understanding or wisdom to know what to accept and what to reject. And the word of God will teach you to close the door to ideas that are outside of Scripture. It will teach you how to be wise. You know, that's what's amazing when we gather. We're from all walks of life here, but we're all wise together in the Word of God. And we have this common fellowship and this common bond because we, we're all believers in the Bible. And it doesn't make any difference, our past, where we came from or anything, where we're at in society. It doesn't make any difference. We're all equal before God. And it's, it's just a wonderful time to be together with believers. The, the, in Hebrew, the wise is the word chakam, C-H-A-K-A-M. It means skilled in all aspects of living. So I'll train you to be skilled, God is saying, in all aspects of living. What else could we possibly want? In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Views the scripture as doctrines, principles, precepts, and they are right. Not right as opposed to wrong in the Hebrew, but right path. They lay out a right path. 
The word is a lamp. The word is a light. But it's also a path. This is the way. Walk in it. There is a way that seems right to man. The end, therefore, is death. Here's the path, and you walk in this path, and it rejoices the heart. Isn't that what Jeremiah experienced? Nobody listened to Jeremiah. They threw him in a pit. And at the end of it all, what did he say in Jeremiah 15, 16? Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy words was in me, in, in me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And John says, I write these things unto you that your joy may be full. I can remember saying to myself when I learned what expository teaching was, going through the verse, Bible verse by verse, I said, what kind of person wants to go to a church service and hear someone explain the Bible? How boring. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't saved when I said that. <laughs> so, sure, that's probably true if you're unregenerate, which I obviously was at the time. Now I can't wait to get somebody to explain the Bible to me and hear their insights and, and break it down and dissect it. And, and it's just in the economy of words, how the message that can come through in a simple verse. This is the word of the living God. And it produces joy in my heart to know that God has said what God has promised. And then the psalmist adds in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord, which views the Bible as mandates and commands and not suggestions or options. He says, the scripture is pure. The actual word in Hebrew means clear or lucid. That is to say that it's not to confuse you. This is to eliminate your confusion, right? Some churches teach us that the Bible is hopelessly muddled. There's a movement, the emerging church, emergent church movement was that way. Well, that's very convenient because if we don't know what it means, then we're not responsible. That's a convenient way to deal with the is that a convenient way to deal with issues in your life? No wonder they won't take a moral position on anything. How would you take any moral position if you don't know what the Bible means by what it says? But it is clear, as the psalmist tells, it's clear enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, view scripture as a manual on worship. Fear, reverence, awe. If I want to know how to worship God, it's all right here. I'm instructed how to worship him in spirit and in truth, and so it is a manual on our worship. It is all these things, as such it is clean, that is to say it's pure, it is without error, it is flawless, thus it endures forever. Things die because of corruption, sin that entered the world. This God's word lives forever. None, as we know now, not one jot or tittle will ever be pass away from this law until it is fulfilled and the word of God lives and abides forever. And so when somebody comes along and says, well, it's out of date, it's antiquated, it's socially unsophisticated, it's psychologic, psychologically unsophisticated, it's out of touch with the modern world, that's not the confession of God about his book. John MacArthur stated, 
I've been all over this planet in every nook and corner imaginable. And I've seen the relevancy of the Word of God in every time and in every location among every kind of people. He's been teaching since the early 60s. And he's, you know, he's been teaching over 60 years now. He's seen it all. He's seen a lot of these movements. And he, he's witnessed a lot of this. And if all you do is open the Word of God, it's amazing. There just aren't any cultural barriers. One cultural barrier, though, is getting the Word of God in people's languages. Uh, that's what some of the handouts there is talking about, the, the history of the Bible, uh, the English Bible specifically. So you'll have that in one of the handouts uh, as a reference. John goes on to say, the challenge in teaching the, John MacArthur, the challenge in teaching the Bible is not to bring the Bible into modern culture. You'll abuse it if you do that. The challenge of teaching the Bible is to take the audience back into the biblical culture, explain to them what the culture was, and let the word speak in its own environment. And that's how you get to the true meaning of it. And there's a lot of agrarian metaphors in the Bible. And as we get further away from agrarian societies, it gets harder, except you know, for the farmers that do produce our food that we have. But my, uh, my grandparents were farmers, so I kind of grew up on the farm a little bit, and so I, I get those metaphors. But it's getting harder and harder as, as generations get removed from that and, and uh, don't even have never been on a farm and understand some of those metaphors. And, and that's part of the thing, explaining the Bible is bringing what do these metaphors mean relative to what God is trying to help us understand. And then finally, the psalmist says, the rules, the judgments of the Lord are true. That does it. That's enough for me. It's true. The judgments of the Lord are true. Views the scripture. Judgment is the adjudication from divine bench of the judge of all the earth. When God renders his verdict here, that's the final word, and scripture is that. It is divine judgment of the great judge of all. It is true, and it produces comprehensive righteousness. At the end of the day, we are believers in the word of God. And if we say that's what we believe, then we better have the integrity to let it manifest itself into where we put our life and our energies. If we believe that there is nothing as powerful as, more, there is nothing as, powerful as the word of God, if we believe that, it's, that this incredible heavenly gift, law, testimony, precepts, and commandments, if we believe that this, is, this, which is the manual of worship, which are the judgments of God, if we believe it's perfect and sure and pure and true and can totally transform and make wise and produce joy and make dark things clear and be perfect for every generation and produce comprehensive righteousness, that defines what our life and testimony has to be. It has to be a true representation of this book. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. It's your word. You started to write the Bible for us with the Ten Commandments of the, on the tablets of stone written with your very finger. And then you used human instruments, Moses as your first, to bring us the first five books of the Bible. And then you continue on with other writers, about 40 writers of the Bible, to bring us your word, 
what you want us to know about you, what we need to worship you and live with you in your world that you created for us, but unfortunately we corrupted with sin. And now you have sent your Savior to save us from our sin, your Son, your only begotten Son, who paid the price for sin, the wages of sin are death, as Paul tells us in Romans. And we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's nothing we can do to be perfect, because to be perfect is to be perfect like Christ, sinless, and we can't be perfect in these fallen bodies. So thank you for your word. Thank you for saving Jesus, sending Jesus to save us from our sins, paying the ransom, paying the death penalty, and exchanging his righteousness to us and exchanging our sins to him. And, and that's something that forever we will be grateful for. We, we, it's just an unbelievable, unimaginable. We could never think of these things on our own. And we thank you for revealing these things to us. And we bow down and we worship you and praise you because you are the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We thank you, Lord. And we ask you that we be bold to proclaim your word to those who have not put their trust and faith in you. That we preach the word that would penetrate their hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit to bring them to you and to save them from their own sins via their faith and trust that they put in Jesus Christ. And they repent from their sins and move and become more Christ-like as they grow in their sanctification and become more Christ-like, which we all need to do. We won't make it in this lifetime, but we'll make it with our glorified bodies uh, when we come to see you after our physical bodies have gone. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.